0: and welcome to this week's holly jolly episode of bat chat with matt and will a batman ranking podcast where each week my co-host will nevin the clown prince of podcasting and i dig into three batman stories discuss them decide which ones are naughty and which ones are nice and rank them on our big list thus creating a giant list of batman
1: stories from best to worst so will how are you on this festive occasion? I am doing quite well, and I'm going to ruin the holiday magic at the very beginning because, of course, we record these things 17 months in the future. As, as we record, this is actually Thanksgiving Eve, and, and, I, and I want to say this. Uh, in all seriousness, I am quite thankful for our friendship and this podcast. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and, uh, and I look forward to many more episodes to come. Uh, but uh, happy Thanksgiving and happy holidays and merry fucking Christmas, wherever you are. Right back at you, Will, and right back at our audience.
0: Thank you all for listening to the show. And we'll thank you again at the end, along with our usual rounds of thank yous. But I think it's pretty obvious that with the festive holiday spirit, we are going to be discussing three stories of Christmas in Gotham City. In all fairness, actually, it's four stories, three of which are Christmas stories, because one issue has two stories and one is not a Christmas story at all, but we'll, we'll I think we'll get to that one right now, won't we? Because that is the first story of the night, the book of the night. That book is Batman Volume 1, number 219. Our two stories are Death Casts the Deciding Vote, written by Frank Robbins, penciled by Irv Novik, inked by Dick Giordano no credit on a colorist, and lettered by John Costanza. And the second story is The Silent Night of Batman, written by Mike Friedrich, but penciled by Neil Adams, inked by Dick Giordano, colored by Jerry Serp? Serpe? Serpe, not sure how that is pronounced, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, and both stories are edited by Julia Schwartz. Cover date, is February of 1970. We'll start with the non-Christmas story, Death Cast the Deciding Vote, where Bruce Wayne comes into contact with the senator who's attempting to pass a crime bill. The two of them wind up on a plane. There's a hijacking and the mob. And Bruce has to pull all sorts of wacky hijinks to appear as both Batman and as Bruce Wayne on this fight. It's very, very 70s. It has this sort of quirky 70s sort of vibe to it and some real time stamps in how the story is told and some of the cultural references there.
1: Oh, yes, yes. But they were, they were fun to research and look up. I actually really dug this story. It, it was goofy in spots, but it also had some good action. Batman as passenger 57. I mean, like that's some good shit right there. And also makes me want to rewatch passenger 57. Cause I haven't seen that in about 15 years. Strangely enough, I have actually never seen air force one. I've got that on, uh, on 4k and I need to watch it. But anyway, I-, I thought this was a lot of good action. Some silly notes, uh, Senator Lincoln, Webster might as well have been Senator uh, Distinguished McHonorable, um, you know, <laughs> I, because of the naming there. But uh, it was, I, like I said, I really enjoyed this.
0: I was curious about that. as You are better informed on politics than I. I keep abreast, but I, I wasn't sure if the, he was a specific analog to historical figure or if he was just sort of, as you said, generic, honorable, good politician. So I take it's the latter.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I think Lincoln Webster is... Definitely intentional. Daniel Webster, Abraham Lincoln. I liked in the story how there are these nods to our party. It's like, even in the you know, the late 1960s, DC's like, no, we're not, we're not coming down in that political debate. And just just the whole idea behind we have this, this do-gooding crusading senator. Shit, I forget what they call him, but it's like old silver hair or it was something like that. They had a weird nickname for him. Then he says he's like, you know, he's five foot tall. He's diminutive, but uh, he's 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 the good honorable C- uh, Senator Lincoln Webster. And he's trying to pass this this tough anti crime bill that's going to make crime illegal. He's he's going to to solve that whole crime problem. And he he tells Bruce Wayne, oh, after this bill goes through, we're not going to have victims anymore. We're going to have the end to crime. And then and Bruce is like. Uh, you're full of shit. That's not going to happen. And then the sister's like, Hey, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right. And then he and, you know, Bruce Wayne are like best friends as they go on this uh, uh, hijacked uh, excursion together. It's, it, it's loony, but it's just grounded enough, like just realistic enough to not be 66 level camp and nonsense
0: interesting historical point in where this fits in the batman continuity this is two issues after grayson goes to college and bruce closes up wayne manor and moves to a brownstone in gotham city so this is really at a time they're trying to transition into a new era of batman which is where the Victims, Inc. program and Bruce really trying to be this sort of modern for the time social do-gooder is coming to the forefront of the character.
1: And of course, because nothing is new in, uh, in Gotham, I just recalled back to when they just moved Bruce out of the manor six months ago, and that has obviously gone nowhere. I just said, it might not have been in Brownstone. It's been a while since I read
0: Man 217. Now that I said Brownstone, might be actually in the penthouse of the uh, wayne industries building i am going to check that because it's going to drive me nuts if i don't ah Uh, yeah this was the penthouse of, of the wayne foundation
1: i think bruce can only live in one of three places the manor a brownstone or a penthouse he's not living out in the suburbs
0: no this is the penthouse and the penthouse that eventually i think Dick lives in during his time as Batman during the Morrison run, or a similar penthouse at least. But yeah, this is a fun story. And yeah, the references are wild, uh, especially my, my favorite ones are dressing these inflatable life vests as May Wests.
1: I, I, I looked this up, all right? I looked this up. This goes back to 1940, and that I don't understand. You yeah, know, this this book published in 69. Uh, so you're you're making a reference that's almost 30 years old at this point. And as I learned, it is specifically a British reference, and the the author is American. So anyway, I'll uh, uh, the first reference in print to calling life preservers may west's uh is from something from the bbc in january 1940 this squadron of fleet air arm fighters is carrying out day after day what i shared with them for a few hours first of all what about the kit full flying kit consists of a combination suit like the skin of a teddy bear on top of that goes a windproof combination suit with a high collar line with fleece then comes a life-saving waistcoat this can be inflated a few moments, by the way, and for some obscure reason is known technically as a Mae West. Obscure reason being, May had tickle bitties.
0: Yeah, I, I figured that out when I figured out what the worm I'm like, oh, that don't fly no more. <laughs> that, that, that's not going to, no, no. I mean, and I love Mae West. I mean, she was a funny lady back in those, those old movies, but, oh boy, that one's not going to fly. The other one was they kept to- every time the hijacking they keep talking about Cuba. And I, I went down a rabbit hole in that and that is, boy, howdy, there were a lot of plane hijackings between America yes. and Cuba.
1: Yes, I, I don't, there's an entire Wikipedia article that tracks the decades of hijackings involving like flights to Cuba. And I looked at one month in 1969, the year that this was published, in January of 69, there were eight hijackings of flights either to or from cuba to the united states eight in one month that's ridiculous
0: nowadays plane hijackings are such a rarity that i never realized how chronic they were in the 50s 60s and i guess into the early 70s but wow that's a lot of hi- there were a lot of
1: hijackings involving cuba and uh, I, I really wish we had like a historian on or something who could really speak to this. But I, I think eventually the, the feds are just like, no, we're not having this anymore with, uh, you know, the air marshals and increased federal penalties and obviously 9-11 and now within for, uh, you know, beefed up airline security and cockpit security. If you want to try to take over a plane in, you know, 2021 slash 2022, good luck the the fucking passengers are probably going to uh kick your ass before you even get close to the cockpit but yeah this was uh this was 69 (laughs) definitely uh not uh not what we're looking at today it's
0: a wild story and there's another bit one thing that I, i was like wait there's a not a ton of really political speech but at one point, when uh, criminals were trying to keep this bill from passing, they're trying to just keep the senator from uh, getting to Capitol Hill to you know, be there to put his bill forth.
1: Oh, oh the, the Hill, by the way, is what uh, people in the know call uh, Congress.
0: Right. And that was the, like... They
1: put, Thanks, editors.
0: They put, asterisk, they put an asterisk by the Hill to explain that. That man is thinking about a, a slim margin default. And there's no asterisk on that. These books were geared for kids, really, at this point. So you needed to explain The Hill, but not how a slim margin default works? That's a choice. I I loved all the weird little caperiness of Bruce, you know, inflating the bat suit and counting on, okay, They believe Batman and Bruce Wayne are different people. So if I open the hatch and I'm there tied up, they're going to think Batman got out. They're not even going to think about looking on the plane. This is a really clever little story.
1: And then he tosses the Batsuit out of the plane.
0: Both Frank Robbins and Irv Novick, the creators on this, a, a lot of Batman stories in this Bronze Age period are guys who, as we hit this period, we're going to see their names pop up a lot. And they did a lot of these, you know, short one story in a multi, multi-story multi issue. And Robbins wrote fun stories and uh, Novik drew really solid Bronze Age art. I don't know if it was quite as chatty as some of the Denny O'Neill stuff, which is a little later than this, but it wasn't as qu- caption heavy didn't feel as caption heavy as some of the O'Neill that we've read from around no. the same era.
1: The, the various kind of capery bits were a little bit hard to follow in terms of like Batman, you know, stuffing the, the Mae Wests into whatever body bag Bruce Wayne was supposed to be in and then inflating them and deflating them. And uh, that was a little hard to follow. But, you know, in terms of the the action, like I said, it just, it zipped right along. Uh, I think one of my, one of my favorite bits of dialogue. So at some point, you know, Bruce is trying to investigate what, what appears to be a hijacking, you know, cause he, he wisely notes that, Oh, the, the sun is setting on the wrong side of the plane. We're headed in the wrong direction. I I better go check on stuff. Uh, and so he, he heads up to the cockpit and uh, you know, the, the goons try to turn him away. It's like, uh, sir, the, you know, the lavatory's the, the, you know, the other way. And then Bruce says, when I got to go, I go my way. It's so I, I imagine Bruce Wayne just swinging his dick out wherever he wants, you know, pulling a Lyndon Johnson and just pissing wherever he feels like. And, you know, in a total power move. So I appreciate that. Like Bruce Wayne, alpha male will piss wherever he wants to.
0: Do you have anything else for this one? Or do we want to move into our second story? Because uh, I do agree uh, with that. That was great. I just I want to make sure we stay roughly on budget on time on this one.
1: Uh, yes. And I, I will say uh, Digitalis, totally a dick pill. I don't, I don't care what, uh, what Senator Webster says. Uh, <laughs> that's a dick pill.
0: So now on to The Silent Night of Batman. First thing that jumped out at me reading this in the same issue and right after, as we've seen with these Neil Adams stories, the colors on this are seriously retouched again. Yep. These have the modern colors and DC seems to always include those versions in any digital reprints, even if it's outside of the, I'm sure, digital retouched trades that collected all the Adams stuff. This one is shorter This is clearly a backup, despite it being the more famous story from this issue. And this story, as a synopsis, is more about the effects that Batman has had on Gotham and its citizens. On Christmas Eve, Batman goes to the GCPD and starts singing Christmas carols with the police. And then we see various citizens of Gotham and how Batman has sort of affected their mindset.
1: And Batman has a good time with the GCPD. They, they sing carols all night. We're still close enough to Batman
0: 66 here, where Batman is still sort of in that duly deputized officer of the law vibe, more than the dark vigilante of the night. So he does go to the GCPD and, you know, carols and wassals with the boys. And there's a weird supernatural thing with the spirit of Christmas by the end of the story. But it's a Christmas story. You get a little bit of a pass on that. When the foundational story of modern Christmas is a ghost story, Christmas stories get a little bit of a pass on the supernatural.
1: Now, I I will say one thing I'm going to quibble with. Let's play a game. One of these things is not like the other. Uh, one of these things just doesn't belong. Okay, so we got some uh, some little street hoodlums uh, that get guilted into returning a Christmas gift to the person they stole it from. Well, a Christmas gift of uh, of, 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 of wee Batman. We got a guy who decides not to rob a fundraiser dressed as Batman who happens to be blind. So he, he you know, out, out of guilt, he decides not to. And then third, we've got a woman who decides not to send her GI, a Dear John letter, and then he just shows up, like right there. I read
0: that differently. Okay. Looked at that because I read that. I might have I might have completely misread that
1: beat but
0: it's, it's th- either a
1: dear John letter or a suicide note. That's what I thought. I thought she
0: had gotten the letter saying her GI husband or boyfriend was assumed dead. And she was going to jump off the bridge and then sees the shadow that looks like the symbol of Batman that gets her to stop for a minute. And then the, truck with the boyfriend who wasn't really dead pulls up and batman stops her from killing
1: herself i I think that's that's absolutely plausible i I guess it could be read either way a dear john or a suicide just given the, the the way she just rips up the note right suicide probably does make more sense but it was just so strange in how he just shows up so conveniently right there on the bridge where she's, I guess, presumably about to jump off. Yeah. Um, so, th- the more I think about it, the more I like your reading, but I think it's the moment still doesn't make any sense. Oh,
0: the moment is definitely jarring, especially compared to the other two that are much more Batman beats than that one. Yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm looking at it again. I, I think she's reading the letter and crying with the photo of the GI. Then she still has the letter, and she has the letter, and she buys the rose, and is holding the rose and the letter. And she throws the rose off when she sees the symbol of Batman. It really, I'm i am pretty sure she was going to jump, and that was her her suicide note.
1: I'll buy it, but I, I think we, we do agree that the scene is is wonky. Especially
0: compared to the other two. I'm not 100% sure what else you would have done for that third beat. And I I see the the hopefulness, but I don't know why Batman inspires you not to jump off a bridge.
1: Yeah, you could have done something that was... I don't know you could have you could have looked in on like you know the orphanage and you could see some some kid kind of crying and then he looks up and sees you know the bat symbol and he you know like he stops his sniffling or something. You, you could have done something else. This it was just too weird.
0: And then you know you see the spirit of Christmas and then there was no crime that night. It's it's a miracle. Nice, I mean that's a nice thought and it's a lovely little story but it's it's a the story is a trifle this is not a deep meditation on christmas or batman
1: no i think out of all the four stories we have tonight it's it's the weakest for sure
0: but it's it's early neil adams so it gets a lot of memory because of it being early neil adams batman and it's it's sweet It's, it's it is yeah it's, it, it's the least, but it it's by no means bad. This is not a bad Batman story,
1: but it's just it's just kind of there and fun. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like uh, one of their uh, frosted sugar cookies, right? Uh, yeah. You don't really need it, but you know, it's not terrible.
0: I don't have anything more for, for this book, so
1: I think... Oh, 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 let's put it on the board.
0: Okay, so now we are heading over to our big list of Batman stories that currently has 39 stories on it. Number one remains Batman Year One from Batman Volume 1, numbers 404 to 407. Number 10 is Beautiful People from Detective Comics Volume 1, number 821. Number 20 is The Secret of the Waiting Graves, another Neil Adams penciled story from Detective Comics Volume 1, number 395. Number 30 is Demons, Batman Adventures Annual Number 2. And at the bottom of the list is Superman and Batman Versus Vampires and Werewolves. That bad old duty book. Yep. It's always a little trickier when we have multiple stories in a book. I mean, this is, this is I think, pretty solid middle-of-the-list comics.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm looking right there somewhere around 20. I don't I don't feel much higher than that, if higher at all. It's not better than Secret of the Waiting Graves,
0: which is number 20. That despite being a little more narrative heavy, is wild and has some you know proto O'Neill Adams ideas that come into play later. Uh, fun as it well was, I enjoyed uh, Batman Judge Dread more. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't take as wild a swing as Clown at Midnight does. I think we're looking in the 25-26 range. 25 is Blades, which I have a soft spot for. 26 is Overdrive, the all-ages see for younger readers, graphic novel. And then 27 is last week's Faces.
1: I think it's better than Faces. Yes, I was gonna say, it's
0: definitely better than Faces. Does it beat Overdrive? Overdrive has more of an emotional heart to it because it's got that, that Alfred thing. I, I, well, I'm not in love with the way Bruce treats Alfred in that story. I love how Alfred treats Bruce. I think it might go right there. I think it might go in between Overdrive and face.
1: Sounds good to me. Right. We are going to make this our new number 27. The 40th entry on the big board.
0: For all of you out there listening, I will have just edited out a whole bunch of the sounds of me and Will updating our lists and typing. Be grateful, because that is not good radio.
1: Nah, sorry. I like a mechanical keyboard. Uh, Clickety-clack,
0: motherfucker. Woo! Damn right. Next up is Favorite things. This is from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, number 79. The writer is Mark Miller, penciled by Steve Yowell, inked again by Dick Giordano, colored by Laurie Smith, lettered by Willie Schubert, and edited by Archie Goodwin and Chuck Kim. Cover date is January of 1996. This is Giordano in two books, 26 years apart.
1: My goodness, what a career.
0: The man was a workhorse and an editor. And he he worked and worked and worked. In this story, Batman is hunting down criminals who robbed Wayne Manor and various other wealthy homes in Gotham around the Christmas holiday. Once again, Joy of Joys, it's time for problematic Creator Watch.
1: Boom boom yeah.
0: Mark Miller is not my favorite creator in general. He writes comics that are generally flash and little substance and I will never quite be able to wrap my head around a particular comment he made some years ago in an interview with New Republic, quote, "The ultimate act that would be the taboo to show how bad some villain is was to have somebody being raped, you know? I don't really Ugh. think it matters. It's the same as, like, a decapitation. It's just a horrible act to show that somebody's a bad guy. Ugh. Yeah, and the article that I came back to when I was looking at this references uh, the response to Miller from former Comics Alliance editor-in-chief Laura Hudson pointing out that what Miller isn't expecting is that usually the rape of a female character has nothing to do with her agency and everything to do with the response from the male hero. It's fridging writ even larger because in this case, the victim is still alive to
1: react. And- yeah, there's just a certain school that he and, and Mark Wade and Alan Moore... Just in the the manner in which just it's almost trivialized. Um, I, I remember the last time I tried to go back and, and reread uh, Irredeemable and the way that Mark Wade just 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 throws in sexual assault. It's just terrible. Like I, I don't know. I'm glad we have progressed beyond that. I am glad uh, some of us, for the most part. I'm glad we've moved beyond that as storytellers because that's just, that's just, just a terrible fucking read. Yeah.
0: And someday we'll get to identity crisis
1: and, oh boy.
0: But, but nonetheless, Miller aside, especially because this is very early Miller. This is not the Mark Miller of wanted and nemesis and Kickass. And his
1: current Netflix Ponzi scheme.
0: (laughs) No, this is the Miller who was still fresh off of or still occasionally partnering with Grant Morrison. Their earliest works together are excellent. They did a run on Swamp Thing, the first arc or two of which were Morrison and Miller and then just Miller and then Aztec, The Ultimate Man. And my favorite thing that Mark Miller has ever written, he wrote a roughly two-year run on the all-ages Superman adventures that is excellent and showed how much he really got Superman as a character. And no one would expect Mark Miller to have written a really good all-ages Superman comic. But he did. Surprise. Yeah. this is a pretty decent story, all in all. It's got some some weird touches and at least one it's editorial didn't catch something that struck me as like that's a weird, pretty obvious thing that somebody should have
1: caught somewhere. ooh, let's 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 hear that bit, and then i'll I'll jump into my take. Okay. At the beginning of this story, Batman's
0: costume is the year one era black bat on the chest. About halfway through, it's suddenly the bat in the oval. And there's no explanation. There's no time jump. Somehow he just changes
1: costumes arbitrarily. Huh. I did not catch that. Yeah. Uh, let me...
0: See if I can find the specific page where it happened. Immediately jumped out at me when the costume suddenly changed because early this is obviously year one era because Jim is still addressed as Captain Gordon at the beginning of this story when you first see Jim. And on the cover, it's just the black bat. So and it's he's driving the original. Batmobile. and then on page right at the beginning on page three he's got the yellow oval which isn't right then you at page 10 he's suddenly in the just black bat costume you are absolutely right looking at that now It's just an editorial inconsistency because there's no reason he would have had time to change. And Archie Quinn is a better editor than that. So I'm not 100% sure what was going on there, if it was just a rush job or something. But it it was just a strange thing that jumped out at me.
1: Well, this is fairly late into the Legends run, right? About halfway through, Legends ran to a little over 200. Ah, okay.
0: There, the thing with Legends is Legends runs from one to the one teens doing the whole flashback, you know, early Batman career stuff. Then it syncs up during No Man's Land with current Batman continuity. And then after No Man's Land starts bouncing around wildly through Batman continuity. Some stuff is current, some stuff is in the past. Before No Man's Land, there was only one arc of legends that was set in the quote unquote present, and that was also part of crossovers. It was part of Night Quest, the Night Set. After it comes back from No Man's Land, it never quite reaches the heights that it did in those early issues. There are a couple of great arcs after that. Dwayne McDuffie writes a couple of really fun, solid arcs after that. Denny O'Neill, who comes on and off, writes a couple. But it never quite is as great as those first 50 or so issues. The first four years of Legends of the Dark Knight have some of my favorite Batman stories. Some of which we'll be hitting in the
1: not-too-distant future. We've got to put venom on the list oh
0: yeah definitely we, got, we I want to do venom uh, I wanted to do, oh, there's an actually I, before anyone corrects me or asks me on Twitter there is one other issue issue 27 is also set in current continuity because it was a crossover between Batman detective and
1: legends so don't ask uh, l- let me let me just just give a, a, a just a helpful hint to anybody out there don't don't come at Matt right he, he knows more than you and he he will whip you, so don't try it. Matt, Matt might not
0: remember something in that exact second that he said it, but it will ob- as it just did, obviously come to me within one minute of saying something. It's like, oh wait, no, no, there was that exception, and and that one. Oh yeah, and that one too.
1: But yeah, Venom. Um, Venom. the story where uh, Batman might just be a delusion. Masks is the one where Batman might be a delusion.
0: But I think man, uh,
1: I think Alex Pacnadell turned me on to uh, masks, I think. Yeah. Brian Talbot. It's a great story. We'll also
0: eventually get to uh, Legends 50, which is Images, a retelling of the first Batman-Joker battle uh, by Denny O'Neill. I already have a triptych built around three tellings of Batman's first encounter with the Joker. So, so we'll get to that one there.
1: Well, remember, we're going to get to everything.
0: We, Oh, yep, we absolutely will. But back, back to this story, because we've got stuff to talk about here.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll give you my general take on this. So the execution is weird. Uh, we take some strange turns. Uh, I think when you involve two street gangs in this, that's one gang too many. For you know, twenty-two pages or whatever, but the emotional beat at the end was was really resonant for me. And um, you know, we're in the we're in the holiday season, and I, I don't mean to be a, a total downer, but I'm going to be a little bit of a downer. It's hard to describe the feeling of losing a parent to anyone who hasn't lost one, and uh, I lost my dad when was that 2007 uh so 14 years ago it's been a long time that doesn't feel like it but some of my best memories with my dad were uh were helping him with some embalmings he was he was a part-time uh undertaker and uh that was a really strange thing and it was just it was time i got to spend with him and time you know i spent you know doing a weird kind of gig and that was something that not a whole lot of other sons got to do with their dad, so it felt really neat. After he died, I hung i i i hung on to his his embalming tools. They came in like a, they, he kept them in like a little like a little suitcase pouch, like it was, it was like a pouch that was part of a luggage set that he had just he just put them in there. And obviously, I'm not going to ever use those. And yet it was still really hard for me to let go of those because they were a tangible, touchable reminder of some really nice times that I had with my dad. And so Bruce, and this is obviously spoiling the end of the story, wanting to keep this toy train set, this this train set being the last gift his parents had ever given him, that was a real understandable moment. Um, and again, that was something that was really resonant with me. So I thought a lot of the turns in this piece were real goofy. The, the street gangs, the, the strange, like blind dancer informant that Bruce cultivates, but it's, it's charmingly sweet too. So I don't, again, I don't like the, the turns we take along the way. But where we end up, I thought was a really nice beat.
0: I thought that was a nice beat. It didn't, it didn't resonate. I still, my father is still with us. So I haven't, I don't have that particular. And as you said, I could not imagine that. And I, I would rather not try to feel those emotions until I absolutely have to. No offense, no offense.
1: Amen, brother.
0: (laughs) You know, especially as we are on the eve of Thanksgiving and it's kind of like, I'm going to, gets to spend the first holiday with my parents that I've spent with them in a year because we've all been locked in our own houses for nearly, a, for over a year. So oh, I, that is a nice beat. Yes, I agree. The two gangs, both of which are weird gangs, both uh, the Joy Boys, who are a Joker-themed gang, and one of numerous Joker-themed gangs throughout the history of Batman.
1: Because and, we have no new ideas in Gotham. Right. And then the Chessmen, who are a chess-themed gang. And I'm looking
0: at these, and I'm kind of thinking, did Mark Miller not know that the Royal Flush Gang existed, the card-themed gang? Because they would have worked just as well, and there's a long and storied history of the Royal Flush Gang.
1: But, uh, and there, that gang should have had a queen, it! Like, if you're going to do the Chessmen... You have to have some kind of weak, ineffectual king and then a queen who is really running the show and can do basically whatever she wants and is ripped to shreds. I would have been all about that.
0: That man is, is pretty brutal to various and sundry that he's running into in this story. He is not pulling any punches. And he gives his first informant a swirly, which kind felt of like, really? I, I I kind of pictured Batman being a above you know what a high school bully would do but i guess he's in a mood and i mean for someone who hangs people off buildings i suppose a swirly is probably not the worst thing he's done to somebody on this particular night
1: yeah so he he goes through all of these these various people to find out where the loot is and then we're not given like how he actually recovers the stuff But even rewinding all the way back, we really don't know why the chessmen took the train set, right? If you're going to break into Wayne Manor, seems like there's going to be any number of things you're going to take before what might appear to be some kind of vintage, uh, you know, toy train.
0: It's funny, reading it and not having read it since probably around the time it came out, I didn't remember what they had stolen. And my first instinct was it was gonna be those damn pearls again.
1: I, I, that's, I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing. And to be clear, that would have made more sense, right? Because the pearls are something intrinsically of value and not just something that's valuable to Bruce. I
0: mean, if they had established that the chessmen were gonna ransom these items back to their owners, I, it would have made more sense.
1: Or if the stooge at the end had somehow taken the train set for his kids. And that would have been kind of a touching moment that, you know, Batman just says, no, you keep it, right? That, that would have been sweet. Yeah, and that,
0: and there's, again, because we've, we've seen this before in some of the other stories that we've talked about, where Batman has this moment where the guy who the chess man had handed the loot off to who wasn't like a full member of the gang had agreed to do it just so they would give him money so he could provide, you know, get food and things for his, his sons and Batman's there. And it's little boys shouldn't be left on their own. Just don't do it again. And you know again,
1: here's some money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He does that. And he's always got a soft spot for leaving a kid without, without their parents that's a bit of a I don't know if exploitative beat is the right word but it's kind of a let's you know twist a little bit on that one especially compared to the beat right after with Bruce and the train that it feels like a much more natural to the story and heartfelt beat versus this very again saccharine isn't the right word but intentionally like Oh You feel that you feel the holiday spirit and eh? eh? sort of beat that we get with Bruce and the, the kids and the, the father.
1: Yeah. I, I thought the very last couple of panels were much more emotionally resonant where Bruce is, you know, he's, he's still in, he's still in his bat pants and he's, he's setting the train back up. And then Alfred comes in and says, uh, master Bruce, it's time for bed and that just kind of hints at in many ways and we you know we've hit this note before like we can't you know unless it's speeding bullets we're not dealing with some immature man child but in many ways you still have a grieving child and i thought that that note with alfred being even just for that that moment a surrogate parent to someone who is in some way still a child dealing with grief. I thought that was a good moment. It
0: absolutely is. I, I'm a sucker for Alfred surrogate dad
1: stuff. It's
0: always, it's always good when you can get some of that in there.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't heavy handed at all. It was just a, just a subtle, subtle thing that I thought really worked. I'm not entirely sure if there's much else to discuss
0: here. Uh, He Miller also does use that on a much lighter note than what we've been talking about. He uses that bat sonar from year one again that summons the bats that he somehow targets directly just at the king of the chessmen. Like, wh- why did the bats just attack that? It's not like Bruce throws it on the guy, he's just holding it, presses the button, and the bats attack the one guy.
1: We're, Does we're- Batman test all of his bats for rabies, you think? i would hope if he's doing
0: this and word to you mark miller of 1996 batman's not aquaman he doesn't talk to bats or as the harley quinn of the harley quinn animated series says he doesn't fuck them either
1: uh that you know of that we know
0: but i mean Granted, the hey that a lot of that comes down to the the Warner executives. Let's be fair, because the creators of that show, Batman goes to town. It's only the the executives (laughs) that say that heroes
1: don't do that. Uh, Batman goes downtown. Damn right, he's the best at whatever he chooses to do. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Bat Chat after dark.
0: So so getting back to the the warm holiday fuzzies, uh, do we have anything else on this one?
1: Oh, I don't think so. I saw again the the blind dancer slash informant. It, that was that was weird. That was weird. It was odd, but I I liked the moment at the end where
0: Bruce offers her comfort and tells her she's still beautiful. Yes, yeah. it's nice. I I always like when Batman shows that bit of humanity, and he always does it when. It's just him. There's a moment in an Ed Brubaker written issue of Catwoman where it's Selena's birthday and there's a big party and Holly and Slam Bradley and most of her supporting cast are there. And she hears, I can't remember, she hears something or whatever, she goes into another room and I can't remember if Bruce is there and says, or if she just finds a card that says that he made a large donation to a hospital in her sister's name. And Selena, you know, says to like, Bruce, why are you so damn sweet when no one else is watching?
1: Because that's a true measure of character.
0: It is. And it's so absolutely true that Batman is never the, the, the softy that he really is at heart in front of everyone. That's what Clark is there for. Bruce does it, rightly so. And again, the measure of character, that is not saying that S- Superman's nobility is performative. It is by no means. But for Bruce, it's just, it's not what he is and what he does. But yeah, I think that's probably about, uh, the Steve Yell's art is good, very solid. It, it's not particularly flashy, but I really think it works well with this story. Absolutely. So I think it's time for us to... Oh, 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 let's put it on the board. So we're looking above the last story. How much higher than that last story,
1: though? I, I, I don't think a lot higher. I, it probably beats Overdrive. The, the Bruce
0: Alfred stuff here is more is more subtle, is probably a little bit better than a more YA heavy handedness of overdrive. Where do you feel this is in relation to blades? Because As you know, I have a soft spot for blades, so I'm going to need a little bit of a, a outside
1: opinion on that. Well, I'll, I'll defer to you on Blades, uh, but I'll say I, I don't think this is as emotionally satisfying, despite all the nice things I said about it, as super heavy, like the very best bits of super heavy. We're somewhere between 21 and 25, and I will, I will always grant you deference to Blades, good sir.
0: I think as much as I love Blades, this is a more streamlined story. This is an A to B in one issue. Blades in places does have some meandering and I think its ending could have been a little stronger. Not necessarily the very end, the the suicide by cop bit in Blades, I like that, but I still have, some issues with if Robinson wanted to make this a noir, he should have taken it all the way, and he doesn't quite take it all the way.
1: No half measures.
0: Then we get Clown at Midnight, which is a big wild swing. But, again, it's a wild swing that doesn't necessarily succeed everywhere. And then there's Zero Year, which is a similar thing. I think this one might go in between Batman,
1: Judge Dredd, and Zero Year. I like that because uh, my default position since we started this podcast has been fuck Zero Year.
0: Yeah. This is streamlined. Zero Year is
1: anything but. Ugh. Never going to get those hours back. All right. And now it's
0: time to move on to our final story of the night. This story is Slay Ride from Detective Comics, Volume 1, Number 826. Written by Paul Dini. Penciled by Don Kramer. Inks by Wayne Foucher. Colors by John Kalich. Letters by Jared K. Fletcher. Edited by Michael Siglane and Pete Tomasi. Cover date is February 2007. In this one-off story, the Joker kidnaps Tim Drake, ties him up with Christmas lights in a car and sees a drive-through Gotham hitting people with the car and sort of monologuing at Tim while Tim plans how to get out of the trap and beat the Joker. Paul Dini is back from one of our top stories currently number 10 beautiful people and one of the masterminds behind batman the animated series his penciler on this don kramer was one of his principal artists on his run on detective this is our first book that we've covered that has a real featured role for tim drake there's a cameo in year three before he was robin he shows up in little gotham But this is more a Tim Drake story than a Batman story. And in case I haven't made it clear anywhere else. Is he your favorite Robin? He is my favorite Robin. I had not heard that before. Tim Drake is one of my favorite characters in all of comics. I love Tim Drake. Tim Drake is the fanboy who made good. Tim Drake was the world's biggest Batman fan who got to become Robin. When, and I was about, uh, I was a few years younger than what Tim would have been when Tim was introduced and when right around the time I started reading comics. So I grew up with Tim Drake. I love Tim Drake. And Tim is the smartest Robin. Tim is the master detective. And my favorite thing about Batman is Batman is always the smartest guy in the room. And when it comes to the next generations of heroes, Tim's the smartest guy in the room. I love that. I love this character.
1: It's it's interesting how in the modern Bat family, you have members who are maybe smarter than Bruce. You have members who are perhaps better fighters than Bruce. And it's very interesting how that's been built up over the years. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that. And, and let me ask you this before we get into this. Tell me about Batman 655, because they they have a note that says, This issue takes place before 655. And I I could not have been bothered to look that up. I just assumed that you automatically knew what it was. I did. Of course Um, you did.
0: Batman's 655 is the beginning of the Morrison problem. That is the issue where the Joker gets shot in the head.
1: Mm.
0: So this... All has to take place before that story because the Joker isn't Clown at Midnight Joker yet.
1: That makes sense. Okay. That's a very important note. I love Genie's Joker. It's it's very much the animated series Joker.
0: It absolutely is. This is the animated series Joker if there wasn't standards and practices. Yeah, yeah. Get from actually yeah. killing people.
1: Yeah, this, this is a hard-R animated series joke. He's just such
0: a son of a bitch. He's just, he's just arbitrarily hitting people with this car. And then it's like, oh, I hope he's okay. Let me back up and find out. And he's got Tim bound and gagged, and he's just talking at him. A lot of this is... Joker monologuing with Tim's internal monologue as captions and one flashback to the period of 52 where Bruce, Dick and Tim were away from Gotham for a year, traveling to all the places that Bruce trained at so he could sort of recoup his skills and have this year away with his son.
1: I did not care for the flashback simply because I don't think it added enough to the to the overall story. It felt like an aside and not one that was particularly important. The the writing, though, in the flashback was good. Uh, Talking about like Joker, like hearing screams and savoring them like a fine wine like that. That was good. Even if it didn't feel particularly, I guess, authentic coming from Dick. Like it didn't seem like a natural line, but it was a good line. And the line that, and one that felt very natural to Bruce is Bruce talking
0: about how the Joker would focus on the person who was the most afraid of him and zoom in on them. It's like, that's the observation that Bruce would have made about the Joker. And it is an absolutely appropriate thing for the joker to do because he would want to get the biggest laugh for himself out of tormenting the person who's the most afraid of him
1: uh like any uh psychopath bully out there
0: it's why when you're in a uh, an audience where there's audience participation never look like the person who doesn't want to participate just don't do it because oh no they will hone in on you like sharks
1: like blood in the water
0: i i think though my favorite bit in the entire issue is when they pull into a fast food restaurant and the joker is just giving this incredibly long and elaborate order and the poor person on the other side we can't see him because he's just talking into the speaker like sir, you have to slow
1: you have to slow down i, I can't yet yeah. sir i'm gonna need you to slow down uh, sir please
0: and, and then he pulls you know oh all right. and he pulls up and he reams this poor young woman out and like i need to talk to your manager is there a problem sir
1: and he just shoots the guy and drives off strange thing about that manager right he has a clearly readable name tag mike nebecker and i looked it up and it doesn't appear to be anybody out there right there there are a few like random google search returns for the name uh none that seem to be particularly notable and i just wonder like who, was, who is that? Why, did his, why does his name get thrown into that comic book? But you can clearly read the name tag. Like, it had to be intentional. I wager probably letterer Wayne
0: Foucher knows a guy with that name, whether or not he's his friend and he thought, hey, he'd get a kick out of being killed by the Joker, or he was his high school bully, and he's like, hey, this guy gets blown away by the Joker. Let me work through some of my psychological issues. By having that guy get blown away by the Joker?
1: One of those two things.
0: And I love how Tim works through this whole thing. He's trying to figure out the way around. And in the end, what he winds up doing is using the Joker's own vanity against him. And also love that Tim is a big fan of the Marx Brothers. Also, so and I like that Tim is a Marx Brothers fan and Dick Grayson is a Stooges fan. It's very much Dick is this Dick is all physicality. That's it. not that Dick is dumb, but Dick's an acrobat. Dick's about physical comedy. Well the Marx Brothers are all about that pattern, which is towards Tim's intellectualism. But I love that he needs to distract the joker so he misquotes. The Marx Brothers, and it gets the Joker so riled up, it gets him so annoyed, and just for Tim to be able to go out and punch him in his smug psychotic face.
1: The one line I did not like in uh, in that section, uh, in that uh, Tim's you know internal monologue says, uh, basically, I can't screw this up. Quote. I just want, I just go Batman on his ass. And that just, that just didn't read as very clever. Not, not subtle, not, not as, you know, you're talking about the, the intellectual side of the character. It's just not, not really bright, right? It's just, that line landed with a big thud for me. Not the best line. And I'm trying to think,
0: Dini doesn't write a ton of Tim Drake in this run. So this might be the mo- the most Tim Drake story Deanie writes. And I think he gets him mostly right. But that line, and there's another bit earlier on where in his internal monologue, he's just thinking about how much he wants to, just, I just want to beat him, I want to beat him within an inch of his life. And I can, I mean, I can understand. Tim has had numerous run-ins with the Joker before this. Some of which have left him in pretty, you know, tough stead. And Joker is still the man who, I guess at this point didn't kill Jason, or did still kill him, but Jason is back by this point. But still, I can completely understand wanting to beat the Joker to death, but I don't see Tim's thought process being quite so angry.
1: Do you think there should have been some kind of nod toward Jason in this? I would have liked another
0: something about Joker you know, wanting to kill another robin especially because joker knows that jason's alive at this point it would have been kind of nice to, well the one i killed came back so i need to i need to keep that mark on the bedposts posts right
1: maybe you'll come back too we'll just have to see
0: that would have been a good reference to throw in there but
1: i also think a lot of
0: what dingy was doing in his run was try to make these one-offs mostly as accessible as possible with while existing within continuity, having as little reference to it unless it was directly important and sometimes doing some cleanup on some some more wild continuity. He's the one who writes the fact that the Riddler knows Batman's identity out by using the fact that there's one panel of infinite crisis where joker gets hit in the or joker where the riddler gets hit in the head by a mace and somehow the riddler is thus has amnesia and has forgotten that man's identity which yes we all know that's not how amnesia works but you know it, it was fine to get rid of the riddler i have no problem with a lot of the villains knowing but we'll get to that when we get to hush i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go down a rabbit hole on this one now that's a whole other whole
1: other thing that's a different show.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we'll get there in an episode about comics that have all sorts of Batman villains in them. I do also like at the end where Joker's about to get hit by a big truck and he's like, this would be funny if it was anybody but me. Oh, what the hell? I can take the show. Very animated series line. Very, very animated series moment up there with the end of the episode, Harlequinade, where Harley finally, you know, she, she's tatted off and she finally pulls the trigger on the gun and it's the bang flag. And the Joker just starts laughing at it and gives her a big old Ralph Crams and baby, you're the greatest. The Joker does not fear death. And as long as he's going out well and with a, with a laugh, the, the Joker, I think, is pretty okay going out.
1: It's the last adventure we have left, Matt. What do you think of Kramer's art? Oh, let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was pretty strong. The the facial expressions, the the frozen faces of the the poor people who who Joker has killed and uh, carjacked. I I thought it was generally strong. Yeah. I had one point that I really liked
0: and one point that I was not too big a fan of. I love that he gives the Joker these bloodshot eyes. The veins in his eyes are always there. And it gives him this extra air of sort of creepy, wild madness. Not a huge fan of his
1: Dick Grayson. No, no. If you would have told me the flashback was done by somebody else, I wouldn't have argued. The the scene is not long. It's it's literally we could charitably call it two and a half pages, but all of them in there just seem plastic. It's it's really strange. And there's some awkward, uh just kind of posing, especially I'm, I'm looking at uh uh page. Uh, page seven, and this, there's this panel. I, I believe it's Dick at uh, at a dartboard, and he's just he's his neck is at this weird, unnatural angle, and it's it's a mess. So,
0: it, Dick's also beefier there, when I when it was first there. If it hadn't been the dialogue that was very obviously Dick Grayson's voice, I would have thought he was Bruce because he's built exactly. Wide- Dick is supposed to be lanky. Dick is an acrobat,
1: and there, Dick is built like Bruce is, like big man. And you really only know that it's Dick because Bruce is on the next page chopping wood with his hands and feet, as one does when you're Batman.
0: But other than that, I I thought this was a solid comic with. Two of my favorite characters in a weird, intimate story. It, oh, and it, it is set at Christmas. Uh, you know, Joker has him tied up with Christmas lights. And at one point, he does aim towards hitting a Santa and kids before Tim convinces him to stop by quoting the Marx Brothers, which is why it's here. And the title, Ride, uh, Slay Ride, S-L-A-Y.
1: Uh, you, you, you get it? You get it? It's one of them, uh, one of them, uh, homophones, right? Homophones,
0: yeah, yeah, that's it. That's yeah, it. yeah. But I, well, there are a lot of other Batman Christmas stories. Uh, I just like this story and I wanted to get it in there because I wanted to get some Tim Drake onto the, the pod, and it's a good Joker story. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna throw this one in in our first christmas episode despite it not being
1: the most christmasy christmas story and and hey for our uh, bdsm friends you know tim drake gagged that's your thing there it is yeah joker's got a a ball gag going and everything it's the kind of thing i
0: figure the joker has lying around in bulk i i think though it's an ornament
1: which it, it that it probably is which seems like you could just uh, crunch, but maybe you don't want to do that?
0: If it I don't know, I've don't i never
1: been in that spot, right? Yeah. Oh, I guess we didn't
0: also talk about it. I love that at the beginning, Joker's like, I'm going to drive you to a certain point, then I'm going to let you go. Oh, and of then course. Halfway through, he's like, you know I was lying, right? I'm going to kill you. Again, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Genie... Writes a very specific Joker, and it's a Joker I really like.
1: Yeah, uh, he's he's violent, he's sadistic, he's clever, he's a nightmare. But it's it's a he's a nightmare with specific goals and a purpose that's not just maybe more of our modern interpretation of just somebody who wants to blow up Gotham or something. This is more interesting. And I think every Joker story we've read has been more interesting than, say, Joker War, which had nothing to say about Joker. So I think unless you have anything else? I'm good, which means time to ho, ho, ho. Let's put it on the board.
0: This is the best story of the night.
1: Yes, top 15.
0: Definitely agree. I would definitely put it Above 14, which was Half an Evil, the O'Neill and Adams 2 face story, which while fun, has some weird beats to it.
1: Just, just smash and grab, Harvey. Smash and grab. Fucking smash that post, grab those doubloons, get the fuck out of there. Yes. I don't think it quite beats
0: Lost Episode. Just because that Garcia Lopez art is gorgeous I think story-wise that's a simpler story and I like I generally probably might like the writing on this one as much if not a little better but it's also because it's featuring characters that I have a real soft spot for but Garcia Lopez's art is so gorgeous and while Kramer's is good it doesn't quite reach that level so that means it's going to be either number 13 or number 14. It's in, so the only story in between Lost Episode and Half an Evil is Lil' Gotham. I kind of want to put it above Lil' Gotham. Lil' Gotham is fun and quirky and a great all-ages story. But this story is something great with the Joker and is a good Tim Drake story. I really like this one.
1: A good Tim Drake story beats the only tolerable Damian Wayne story. We have a winner. We have a winner.
0: It will be the new number 13 Sleigh Ride. All right. So that looks like it wraps it up for this episode and pretty much for the year. Next week, we're back into Elseworlds territory for three tales of new Batmans for a new year. Ooh! We'd uh, like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June is Dead, Long, Long Live June, and Joshua Wheel for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at BatChatcomics, Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on comicsxf.com, and you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus contents, pick a story, and even come on the show.
1: We just recorded
0: our first bonus episode, too. We just did, and granted, by the time you hear this, that one will have been out, and we'll be probably just about at the point we're going to be releasing our second, which we haven't quite decided on what it's going to be, but we know it'll be fun, everybody. Trust us.
1: And, and guys, I, I got to say, uh, last night's session was amazing. Matt told me how about uh, how Batman Forever is his favorite piece of Batman media. And uh, he made a compelling argument for it. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah you're going to have to subscribe to the Patreon to figure out if, if how close to the truth, Will, is, is on that one. <laughs> Only your hairdresser knows for sure. <laughs> If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three Cs, comics, cinema, and cats you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQA, and a where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Will, have yourself a happy holiday.
1: Absolutely, happy holidays to you and everyone else out there. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. Ho, ho, ho.